Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I crossed the border in a sense to look at the mainland writer Lao She when he headed to East London in the 1920s to teach Chinese and write novels. Lao She is a key novelist studied by students today, but for years he was off the reading list under Chairman Mao and would commit suicide during the Cultural Revolution. But this is a happier time when Lao She, as a young man, writes Mr. Ma and Son, both a tragic and comic semi-autobiographical novel that showcases his time in Limehouse, East London, amid mainland and Hong Kong sailors, and the prejudice of that time. British lecturer Anne Witchard was in Hong Kong this week and talked to me about her book Lao She in London. In China, he is a really important 20th century novelist, and and so you could say that he's like Dickens is to London or Joyce is to Dublin, Lao She is to Peking or Beijing, or Peking as it was, and that that's his native city. And these days, I think most students in China study him at school. They'll have read, and and in the West, mostly Rickshaw Boy was his his most famous novel, which was made into a film in the late 50s, and and I think then he would have been fairly well known in the West. But less so today, until quite recently, I think. And of course, he was—he um, died during the Cultural Revolution, and it took some years for him to be rehabilitated. So you know, he's—he's he's a big cultural figure in China. And what attracted you to him? Well, what I was working on in London was representations of. Chinese nests, Chinese people in British popular culture in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And mostly, this was through Limehouse fiction, Yellow Peril fiction, opium dens in late Victorian Limehouse, that kind of thing. And of course, they were all written by white people from a Western perspective and to- totally imaginary. And then I came across Lao She's novel called Mister Ma and Son, which. Was written whilst he was in London in the 20s, and takes issue with this genre, this xenophobic yellow peril genre, and and sort of confronts it head on. And this was the only uh, Chinese voice that I'd come across that that fictionalised this. Can you explain how he ended up in London? How he ended up there was, in fact, his ethnic heritage was Manchu, and he came from a poor family. As a result of this, he studied hard, worked hard, and attended missionary school, and did convert to Christianity. So he learnt to speak English. Um, but he ha- he had a well-paid job as a schools inspector during the May Fourth period. He, he, you know, today or more recently, he's had a reputation for being apolitical, but he was certainly active um, in terms of revolutionary young China. I would say he gave up his well-paid job, devoted himself to helping the poor Manchu community in Beijing, and then through the auspices of the London Missionary Society, went to London to teach at the School of Oriental Studies in 1924, and that's how he ended up in London. So how does he? I mean, you've obviously he's got the famous novel that he did during that time. But did, did you come across diary accounts and, and this sort of thing in order to get an impression of of what he first thought when he arrived in London? The novel is is my major source, even though it's fictional. It's quite autobiographical. There are also、um, there's a small archive at SOAS. Now the School of Oriental and African Studies. There are also some reports in expat newspapers of meetings and events that he attended that I used to flesh it out with. Also some essays that he wrote himself about his time in London. One in particular, 
And there are some scholarly work, a little bit, that's been done on his time in London. There isn't that much, but there's enough to give a, a picture of his time there. And then when you add that together with some of the Western writers and people that he knew there, you can fill it out slightly more. Yes, I mean, it's uh, as you say, that there's this, this element of... Western curiosity about Chineseness, but also um, in, in a very uh, stereotypical way, the yellow peril. Uh, but there's also this curiosity of, of Westerners going to Limehouse region, so this east end of London, in order to go and see the Chinese. Yes, there was, in fact, by the 1920s, um, the, the, that region had become so notorious, shall we say, because of press scandals, mostly fabricated, that Thomas Cook used to run tours there and, and little <laughs> mini tours, I know, it's ridiculous, tours of Limehouse, which the local people weren't very happy about. But um, Lausha himself went down to eat in the restaurants down there, in the cafes, as did other Westerners, and he depicts that in his book. He, you know, quite, There are quite a few scenes set there. He also, um, one of the other places is an antique shop near St. Paul's because, of course, there's the attraction for chinoiserie as well and Chinese antiquities and, and, and you know, so the, there's the, the mixture of sinophobia and sinophilia that, that, that gets bound up in the way that Westerners think about China at the time. And he deals with all of that. And the book is, is really very tragic in many ways and it's really comical as well. It's very funny. And the other thing that he does is engage with Western writers and, and modernist literary writers he's very experimental and that's you know the thing that he's known for chiefly back home in china as he's sending this work home to be published is the fact that he writes in the vernacular language and that's also very much part of the revolutionary process for building the new china he writes in baihua and and that's his that's his, what he's most renowned for that native peking dialect that he he writes in rather than the old literary um elite style the translation that I used was not published. It's lodged in the British Library. It's about to be published, I hope, I think, by Penguin China. The other public, published translations were by Americans, and that's why I thought they didn't really catch the flavour of London in the 20s, as well as the one by William Dolby that I used. So, I, yes, I used an English translation. Last year, he's come to work, really, as a missionary, uh, or not? No, no, he's... as a school, as he's teaching the Chinese language to students. So the students that he's teaching are housewives or young men about to go out to the to empire. You know, he's he, that's what he's doing. Uh, so is it other missionaries going out that he's then teaching Chinese yes. to? Yes, missionaries, businessmen, wh- whoever. Yes, he was recommended by the missionary society and funded his travel, his new suit of clothes. They were funded by the <laughs> missionary society. What did you learn about Lao Xie's character? from his writing? Well, I was very much taken by his character, I think, because he seems so it's very warm and humorous. He's also quite indignant in, in this work, um, which would have been an absolutely natural way for a young Chinese man to be, I think. And But even, his, even the character of old Mr. Ma, the novel is The Two Mars or Mr. Ma and Son, Old Mr. Ma is meant to be um, representative of the old Chinese ways that need to be changed. And, you know, he, he's, a, he's often a, he's a very vain and a very silly, selfish man. But at the same time, you, he, even he's lovable because you get a very rounded... His characters are very rounded. They're certainly not stereotypical. They're very human. The other thing that he did when he was in London was to help... He befriended this scholar called Clement Egerton, and he helped him to translate the, a pornographic 
novel called The Golden Lotus, which, you know, is a ma- major work of old, old literary China. And this was not something he could ever own up to back in communist China. Um, but, you know, that, 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 that takes a certain sort of largeness of character, I think, to do that. So, you know, I, I feel v- very fond of him, I think. <laughs> it's always good when you like the subject that you're writing about. But describe to me also Limehouse, this notorious district of London, or so-called notorious district. What was actually the makeup of Chinese there? Was it uh, mainlanders or were there, were there Hong Kongers as well? The makeup was quite mixed and, and sort of divided into two streets. There was Limehouse Causeway, which ran into Pennyfields. The population was sailors mostly, so, you know, sailors who would come in on the ship, disembark for a while, wait for another ship to go out. So I think many of them were recruited from the New Territories, Hong Kong, the New Territories, and then other treaty ports. Why was Limehouse seen as so notorious? Was there sort of opium dens there? Well, one of the things that, you know, part of the sailors' recreation would be to smoke a pipe of opium in the bunk houses, lodging houses that they lived in. And the literature of this neighbourhood starts... You, there are occasional references in, in late 19th century fiction. So in Oscar Wilde's A Picture of Dorian Gray, Dorian Gray goes down to the East End to drown his sorrows in opium. Dickens went to a den in Bluegate Fields, um, which is not far from Limehouse. So there are a few instances of people who wanted to smoke opium going down to the docks to do so. Then I think what happens is journalists pick up on an American tradition of yellow peril fiction. So it's coming from America, really, and they see that that, that this is a, a sort of popular uh, local colour way of fleshing out novels and then they, they think, well, we can do this for our little teeny tiny China, Chinatown as it was, literally a few hundred men in two streets compared to San Francisco or New York for example but so I, I would say that it was a sort of genre thing that gets copied and exploited particularly by Sax Roma and Thomas Burke But how much truth was in it? Very little I think, for, which isn't to say none, so I would say there is a little truth, but certainly it wouldn't be at all glamorous as, as it's glamorised in Roma. Um, yes, I was going to say, but this idea of this uh, sort of den of iniquity with the opium, but also there was uh, the, the, the anime Wong's uh, film Piccadilly was just coming out at that in that time frame, so that was also a bit scandalous. What was that, sort of three-way romance or something? Yes, it was, it was, yes. You have Show Show, the scullery maid from Limehouse, who supplants... Um, the star of the Piccadilly with her wonderful dance routine, which isn't Chinese at all, it's Siamese to, from what we can see from the costume. That scenario was written by Arnold Bennett, who was a major literary figure at the time. He knocked it out very quickly for, you know, bucks, and what he did was just completely appropriate the Limehouse of Thomas Burke and sort of amalgamate it with the West End Piccadilly scenario to give London that edge that um, Berlin or Paris had at the time. Um, and so what you have then is Shosho uh, takes Herbert Wilcox, I think his name is, the who owns the Piccadilly in nightclub in Piccadilly Circus, down to Limehouse to a pub, and she says, this is our Piccadilly. And, and so you have like, an interracial scene, which, you know, that would be part of the shocking element at the time. Their interracial affair, which, you know, the camera stops short just as they're about to kiss. And, and um, of course, the glamour of anime Wong is very much exploited in her skimpy costume and 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 so all of those things they're all box ticking things for the excitement of that film but then what Lao Xiu does is he, he uses the the making of that film 
in his novel to provide the denouement of the plot and, and uh, to critique the way that, that Westerners exploit these stereotypical images of Chinese people. Yes, it really was quite ghastly. I mean, not just in London, but also, of course, in the US, Anna Mae Wong would have been these days absolute and out and out American. She was actually born in America, but always was seen as a Chinese who happened to uh, have to always show her citizenship uh, papers every time she entered the country, even after she became famous. And she was forced into these rather stereotypical roles where she often had to die or was murdered before the end of the film. But going back to, to Lai Mouse and Lao Xie, so he's there for like four to five years and he's sort of soaking all of this up. So what of London, who, who in London did, did he meet? I mean, you're saying he was reading Dickens, but he was also exposed to the Bloomsburyites, the avant-gardists. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, he didn't really mix with those people in their circles. He certainly knew the scholar Clement Egerton, who knew some of those people. The portrayal that he gives in his novel, we can see that he was very well acquainted with the, the you know, all of the kind of um, social goings-on in London at the time, of, the, of both ends of the social scale. Now, obviously, Lao Xie, uh, out of um, any number of commentators in, on Chinese-ness in London at that time, was probably the one who was the most, um, had the most authority to talk on it, but um, didn't stop the likes of Thomas Burke uh, making their own comments on what they saw and experienced in Limehouse. Yes, no, it certainly didn't. Um, and Thomas Burke, apart from being, you know, writing the notorious Limehouse Nights, was, an, was a writer on London, generally, you know, a factual writer as well as a fictional writer. And um, he wrote about restaurants and pubs, and he wrote about the kind of Chinese food you could eat in Limehouse. So he describes a very cockneyfied menu of, um, like, I don't know, winkle chop suey and... and crab noodles and you know there's a very kind of east end food mixed with chinese food and then what lao Xie does is he describes a kind of cross-section of people that you would get in a chinese restaurant in limehouse so you know socialists students old ladies who were looking for the quaint as he describes them and and as well as chinese students and and sailors and and people working in the the shipping trade when he goes to london of course he's a very young man did he then marry when he got back home? Yes, he did marry when he got back home. I think he had, I think he had a love affair. I think he had a broken heart and a love affair before he left China. I'm not quite sure. Before he came to London, I think, yeah. But you need a broken heart to be a good novelist, don't you? Yes, you do, don't you? <laughs> you do. You need to suffer. You need to live. <laughs> And I think he certainly did all of those things. My thanks to Anne Witchard talking there on Laoshe in London. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.